1: He, he had to learn how to work with Thomas Sumter, with Francis Marion, with the militia of South Carolina. He realized that he couldn't command them. He had to kind of, it was a more political process than that. And, and he learns how to do that. He, he learns how to operate in this kind of complex environment.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Andrew Waters, discussing his new book, The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and the Revolutionary War for the Soul of the South. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is a good friend of the show, Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author, Andrew Waters. And he'll be discussing two big-time personalities who didn't always get along, and in fact, almost never got along, during one of our nation's most critical periods, the Campaign in the South. His new book is called The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and the Revolutionary War for the Soul of the South. And in this study, you will see what happens when two major figures don't always play nice, even when the fate of a nation is on the line. Andrew Waters is a wonderful writer. The book is fantastic. I'd encourage you to check it out. Until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Andrew Waters. Andrew Waters, thank you for joining us.
1: thank you brady. i'm I'm so pleased to be here. I appreciate you having me today.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Well, um, I actually um, got an English degree um, coming out of college and um, was in the book publishing field for a while, and I've always loved writing and um, you know aspired to be a writer um, someday when I grew up. Um, kind of as my career evolved, I got into the land conservation field. Um, So I've been doing that the last 15 years of my life. Um, Back in 2013, I moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina to take a job at the local conservancy here in Spartanburg. And that's when I really got introduced to the the Revolutionary War history that happened here in the state of South Carolina. And I I tell people, I I grew up not too far away, up in North Carolina, but I really, until I moved here, I didn't understand um, kind of how important South Carolina was in the American Revolution and and all of the things that happened here. So that was a bit of an eye-opener. Of course, I was involved in conservation and i was seeing a lot of the historic sites related to the american revolution some of which have been preserved here but there's still um, plenty that that still needs some preservation some conservation so that was contributing to my interest in all of this as well um and i just started writing and i uh, sent uh some things um, to the Journal of the American Revolution, and got a few things published there, and that really kind of inspired me um, to try to to write this book. So that, very briefly, that's kind of how I I got to 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 writing the Quaker and the
0: Gamecock. What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Um, so you know, I think it has a lot to do. Um, with that outsider perspective with me kind of being not being from South Carolina kind of moving here kind of settling in and and learning about the history here but also kind of acclimating to the the culture here um and and I as I was reading um a lot of the history um first started with um the John Buchanan book, Road to Guilford Courthouse, which was such a big influence on me and kind of went from there. Um, You know, I kind of had, I felt like I kind of adopted Nathaniel Green's point of view. He was was from the outside and he was coming into South Carolina um, and he was having to learn about the culture here and learn about the, the different personalities here and and how to work with those people, and I was going through something, you know, certainly not as as dramatic as what Green was experiencing, but something kind of similar in my own professional work, and I, it was really that kind of um, kind of outsider perspective um, that kind of inspired um, the 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 theme for this book, because as I was re- reading about Thomas Sumter and learning about him and kind of understanding some of the beginning to understand some of the personality conflicts, uh, that, that green and, and Sumter were, were going through. Um, you know, I have to admit my, my sympathies were with Nathaniel green, but I also was at the same time trying to understand, um, the perspective of Thomas Sumter and really, you know, learning a lot about what was going on here in South Carolina, back in those, colonial times. It was a, it was a complex, um, society. I mean, it, it, there, there really weren't, um, strict lines as far as who was a loyalist, um, who was a, a Whig or a patriot. Um, the, the, the loyalties were very complicated. Um, and in turn that kind of created a very kind of, um, Incendiary uh, environment when the British kind of came in and really upended kind of the the social structure here and kind of ignited this civil war that that went on for the next two two and a half years.
0: Talk about South Carolina to this point. What was life like there in the middle of a partisan war?
1: Okay. Well, so I mean, it, it kind of goes back to nineteen, uh, excuse me, seventeen seventy-five, um, when the tensions were kind of just starting, and um, there was conflict here in South Carolina. And at that time, the the Patriots, the Whigs, really held the upper hand, and they pretty much suppressed um, the loyalists in 1775 and 1776. And, you know, there were some abuses that went on. Some of these um, people who I identified with the, with the loyalist cause um, felt like they had been persecuted, uh, treated unfairly. um, And I'm sure they were, I have no doubt that they were. Um, So kind of things kind of settled down here. And, um, until the British came back to South Carolina in 1780 and captured Charleston, the, the the Patriots, the Whigs, really had the upper hand. There really wasn't any kind of um, active Loyalist opposition. But then, all of a sudden, once Charleston had been captured by the British, and the British started moving into the countryside to kind of establish these Um, command outposts throughout the the South Carolina countryside, you know, everything kind of turned over. And all of a sudden, um, the Loyalists were now um, able to exact some retribution for some of the wrongs that they felt like they had been subjected to earlier in the war. Um, And you know that but that period didn't last very long either. That only lasted for a couple of months until we had Thomas Sumter kind of organize the the patriot militia in the northern part of the state, and then Francis Marion and some of the others kind of followed in behind that effort so then things just kind of really got ugly and you were you literally had um, neighbors kind of coming to your house and terrorizing you and taking your um, your property and probably burning your property. And you know, these were people you knew, people who, who were in the same community as you and there really wasn't any even though the British had these outposts, they weren't really controlling all of these areas. They didn't have enough manpower to really kind of put down an authoritarian rule. Um, so you really didn't have any, any social authority. Um, and it got brutal here. It really did. There was a lot of, um, um, uh, hostility, a lot of retribution and, um, and in many ways it really was a civil war here in South Carolina.
0: Nathaniel Green is a big part of this story. Tell us about his history.
1: Okay. Well, uh, Nathaniel Green, um, of course, he had been, uh, he was at, uh, he wasn't at Bunker Hill, but he was at part of that original part of the Continental Army that um, was promoted in, or adopted into the Continental Army back right around the time of Bunker Hill. Um, he was a major general. Um, He had clearly um, positioned himself not only as one of Washington's most talented generals, but also uh, a very close confidant of Washington. And and even to the point where some of some of the other Continental generals, some of the other Continental officers um, felt like um, kind of Washington favored him too much. Um, but then he, he spent the time, uh, as the quartermaster general for the army, um, green really begged him to take on this role. It wasn't a role that he wanted. He wanted to be, um, you know, in, in combat, um, part of the, the combat troops, but he was good at it. He, he had a, he, he had a very a, one of those minds that was very um, adept at administrative tasks and, and a very adept at organization. Um, so he did a good job as quartermaster general, but he was never happy in it. In that role, he um, kind of later on, um, he some of the Continental Congress started criticizing him and kind of accusing him of taking advantage and and maybe steering some of the the army's contracts to, to some of his own um, companies and some of his own uh, associates, which I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I, I think um, he wasn't necessarily uh, corrupt in that role, but he certainly helped himself. Um, so in 1780, um, after Charleston had surrendered and the, Continental Army's Southern Department essentially um, was captured at charleston. Um, Washington had to or the they needed a new commander for the southern department and and Washington wanted green. He felt I think he felt like he owed Green um, this independent command. Um, he knew Green could do a good job, but of course, Congress chose um, Horatio Gates um, with pretty disastrous results at the Battle of Camden. So so then finally, after Camden, Washington got to pick his own man. He picked Green, and Green came down, um, arrived down in the Carolinas that December of um, 1780, and that's kind of where the, the story picks up. Um, I think Green, he, clearly he was an intelligent man. He was a, a capable man. Um, And he may have been America's best um, field commander. But I also think that he suffered from a bit of an inferiority complex. He had grown up in a strict Quaker household, um, and his father would not allow him to pursue a formal education. Um, I think he always um, felt self-conscious about that. Um, He essentially um, learned to educate himself. He was a voracious reader. Um, He was um, an intelligent man. Um, He learned, he was one of those people that could learn um, how to do something by reading about it, which, you know, not everybody has that capability. Um, But, you know, later on in his Army career, you see um, some of that self-consciousness kind of um come through, and he he was prone to kind of um, overreact um, when people when he felt like he was being slighted or felt like he was being disrespected. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me about this story is really Green having to kind of learn um, the art of leadership on the fly and i suspect he might have seen in thomas sumter you know some of the things that he was guilty of of doing
0: himself on the other side you have thomas sumter Uh, tell us a bit about him
1: yeah i think sumter is interesting um clearly he was also a very intelligent um man um, you know, I think in the book, I, I describe his intelligence, um, as more of, of kind of a street smart. Um, he had an innate understanding of the, the people who were settled in the South Carolina frontier. Um, he, he kind of understood their psychology and he understood how to motivate them, um, he was interesting. He, um, he was apparently, they believe he was from an English origin, um, which was a bit unusual because most of the people who settled in, in the interior of South Carolina were, were Scots-Irish, the, the Ulster Irish who had um, been persecuted um, by the English. But Sumter was, from, was of English origin um, he had served in the British Army during the French and Indian War. He actually had the opportunity to go to London, and uh, he was part of a, uh, a Cherokee delegation that got sent to London. Um, and he actually got an opportunity as a young man to meet King George. Um, he was a person that could kind of straddle the line. Um, he understood the, the psychology of the South Carolina frontier, but he also understood the way that politics and power worked in the state of South Carolina. And In the state of South Carolina, uh, all of the power was down in the low country in the kind of the Charleston, the merchant and planner class that was around Charleston. So, so he was a person who kind of had a foot in both of those worlds and he could operate in, in both of those arenas.
0: What were the circumstances that brought these unlikely personalities together?
1: So back in 1780, kind of in the weeks right after Charleston had surrendered, um, the Continental Army had been captured at Charleston. There really wasn't a Continental Army presence in the state any longer. Um, The British were spreading out over across the state, and a lot of people we kind of accepting the British parole. Um, Andrew Pickens is kind of the famous example of one of the South Carolina militia leaders who, who at that point decided to accept parole and kind of um, withdraw from the fighting, but Sumter um, from the very beginning um, decided to fight, decided to resist um, actually um, you know, he was known kind of as a as a Whig leader, and Bannister Tarleton had burned his home um, as as Tarleton was was kind of moving up the state and <laughs> taking his troops up to the Waxhaws where they fought the, the battle there. He had he he had sent some of his men to to burn Sumter's home, so. The story is that Sumter put on his old Continental officer uniform because he had actually been in the Continental Army earlier in the war um, and went up to uh, the kind of traveled up to North Carolina and and gathered up some resources and came back and started recruiting some of his old troops and started drawing some of the 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 patriots in the upper part of South Carolina to his command and he really emerges as kind of the first resistance leader in South Carolina and that gives him a sense of uh, of status and in fact um, he was named brigadier general by the governor of South Carolina um, John Rutledge that October Um, So really, for kind of a few months there, he was kind of essentially, I I think I say in the book, he was the de facto military dictator of the state um, for a few months at the end of 1780. And um, he, Sumter gets wounded at the Battle of Blackstocks. He actually defeats Tarleton at Blackstocks, which I think is a, is a feat that he, he doesn't get enough credit for, but he, he's, he, he's wounded at black stocks and he's incapacitated. He's essentially bedridden. And then, then that just happens to correspond with the time when Nathaniel Green arrives to take command of um, the Continental Army and also the, the militia forces that were fighting in the Carolinas. So... You know, you can almost sympathize with him. He he was the running the show. He was the, the 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 general here in South Carolina. He gets wounded, and while he's kind of down and out, somebody else comes in and takes his place. So, you know, that's simplifying the the situation a little bit. But from from his perspective, you can you can understand how he might have felt that way. There's a famous incident where, um, Green had sent, um, Daniel Morgan over to the Western part of the state. And that eventually led to the battle of Cowpens in January of, um, 1781. And Morgan sends one of his officers over to one of Sumter's subordinates and, and tells, um, William Hill was his name. He he asked William Hill to help him um, gather supplies for the Continental Army. And Hill refuses to do that. He says, I, I've been told by General Sumter only um, to assist you if he orders me to do so. So that was kind of the first indication that Morgan and then subsequently Green had that maybe Sumter... Um, was not going to be um, you know 100% compliant as far as as working with the Continental Army um, in their efforts uh, to, to to retake the South um, and then of course the conflict or the personality conflict only got worse from there
0: what was Green's primary objective in South Carolina, civil wars, uh, notoriously and many countries going in there and cleaning house seemed to be a bit of a tall order. So what can we say was realistically his primary objective?
1: Well, um, I think green, I think he had, uh, two objectives. I, I think, um, his, his first objective was. Not, not to put his army in a position where it was um, annihilated. Um, he understood that just the the mere presence of a Continental Army um, in the South kind of negated any kind of claim the British could make that that they were in control. Um, so that was probably his first objective. Um, but the second objective was, you know, he felt like after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, um, after Cornwallis kind of moves into Virginia and Green decides that that's not that, that really he doesn't have the manpower and resources to, to follow Cornwallis into Virginia he decides to turn back to South Carolina. And he feels like if he can coordinate with the militia in South Carolina, then he he has enough resources to to extricate the British from these outposts that they had set up um, across the state. And so the, the, the main ones were at Camden, and at ninety six, which was really kind of guarding the, the, the Georgia frontier. So I think I don't think he really would have if if we could go back and ask Nathaniel Green what his plan was when he went back to South Carolina, I don't think he would have said that he he felt like he could defeat the British, but I think he felt like he could continue to take the war Um, to the British, kind of probably as part of an effort to make them realize that it really just wasn't going to be worth it to try to hold on to the South.
0: What are some of the more famous examples of these two big personalities clashing during this campaign?
1: Yeah, I think kind of um, the, the one that sticks out For me, is the one that I I used to open the book with, and that's um, when Green had he he had fought at Guilford Courthouse in March of 1781. Um, You know, Cornwallis kind of refuses to to continue to fight within there, and Cornwallis withdraws and moves to Virginia. And Green decides to move back down to South carolina to to start this what this war of posts he called it kind of attacking these outposts one by one um and he knew all along that that he couldn't do this with his own with just the continental Army i mean he had less than two thousand men. At this point in the Continental Army, he knew all along that he would need the South Carolina militia to help him with this effort. And by now, Sumter had recovered from, the, from his wounds that he'd had, that he'd suffered back in November. Um, and Sumter and Green had been in correspondence throughout this time, and it seemed like Green had been able to repair any kind of harsh feelings that might have um, come up um, around cow pens and and, um, any kind of rivalries that had occurred then. Um, Sumter was assuring him that he would be able to help Green if he came back to South Carolina. Um, And Green gets to he gets to South Carolina, he marches down and he's set up outside of Camden and he's ready to start his assault on Camden and he writes to Sumter and says, okay, uh, Sumter, you know, we're ready to go. We're ready to bring your guys. We're, We're ready to start. And then all of a sudden Sumter's responses aren't, aren't nearly as, um, as positive as the ones he, he'd been sending prior to that. And, and kind of gradually it dawns on Nathaniel Green that he is not going to be able to rely on Sumter um, for this assault on Camden. Um, so that he, he does end up fighting at Camden. Um, uh, the, the battle, which he loses, um, and he he really he, he 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 blames Sumter for the loss. He he feels like if Sumter had come to his support uh, at Hobkirk Hill at the Battle of Hobkirk Hill, that it would have been a different outcome. And he learns that this is going to be a complicated relationship. That he is going to have to manage this relationship. And he's going to have to, um, you know, it's not a relationship where he's just going to be able to order Thomas Sumter to do what he wants to do. Um, it's going to be a lot more complicated than that.
0: Controversy will abound at 96 major moment in your book, major moment in the campaign. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, 96 was a really important um, place in South Carolina at that time. It had started out as a Cherokee trading post. Essentially, it was the largest and most important settlement on the western frontier. Um, it kind of it not only guarded um, kind of the, um, the that western part of Georgia. Um, It also was important for kind of um, defending against the the Cherokees who were still um, hostile at this time, um, still still a threat at this time, perhaps not quite as much as they had been earlier in the war, but they were still uh, a concern for the for the American government. Um, the British, uh, when they took control of South Carolina, they knew right away that they had to set up this outpost at 96, that that was going to be an important place for them to control, to be able to control the state of South Carolina. Um, they had sent this officer, um, Kruger, I forget Kruger's first name, um, Uh, but he was actually Kruger was a loyalist. Uh, apparently, a very uh, talented officer, and and kind of over the course of the seven or eight months that Kruger had been in command of 96, he had built this earthen defensive works kind of right outside the the town of 96, and they called it a star fort because it had. Um, it was built in the, in the shape of a star uh, for defensive purposes. It was very well constructed, um, heavily defended. Kind of after Green um, fought at Camden, um, shortly after that, uh, Francis Lord Rawdon, who had defeated Green at Hobkirk Hill, he felt he decided that he didn't have the resources, the manpower to hang on to Camden. So he depo- he he evacuates Camden. He's moving down south through the state. And really ninety six becomes the next post in that war of posts that Green sets his sight on because he can't move further down to pursue Rawdon and leave ninety six in his rear. Um, So he realizes that he's got to go and, and try to take 96 before he can move, continue to move South down the state towards Charleston. So green marches to 96. He realizes that it's not, um, he he can't take it by force. So he tries to set up a siege. Um, Meanwhile, Rawdon kind of regroups, and he's, he's reinforced um, by some troops that arrive at Charleston shortly after that. So Rawdon, march, Rawdon is marching towards um, 96 um, to relieve Kruger, and Green realizes that he's running out of time, that he doesn't have enough time to complete this siege unless he can stop Rawdon. So what, what Green does is, again, he calls on Sumter to try to stop Rawdon from coming up to 96. Now, it wasn't just Sumter in this case. He had, he had also tried to get Francis Marion to engage in this effort as well. And again, uh, neither one of those leaders responded to Green's request. And we talk in the book a little bit, um, you know, it might have been unreasonable for Green to expect for Sumter and Marion to kind of, in order to stop Rodden, they probably would have had to engage him in an open field battle, um, which probably was unrealistic for militia troops to be expected to to stop um, British regulars. From marching, um, but again, uh, Green feels that Sumter um, lets him down at this point. He feels like Sumter ignores his his requests to come and assist him at ninety six. So he's running out of time. Um, Rawdon is is coming to relieve Kruger, and, and Green knows that he can't he can't he doesn't have enough men just to, to face both of them. So he tries this desperate kind of last gasp attempt to to take ninety six, and he sends this this squad of men and they they were called the forlorn hopes um, because you know even even they realized that their their mission um, was an unlikely one. Um, but to make this a, a long story short the the attack fails, it's a failure. Green has to retreat. And so, again, much as at Hopkirk Hill, um, he's defeated and he feels like Sumter and the South Carolina militia didn't do quite enough, didn't do as much as they could have to have helped him there. Um, But again, you know, Green, Green. Wins by losing because even though he was defeated at 96, the British decided that they didn't have enough resources, enough manpower to kind of hang on to the outpost. So shortly thereafter, they abandon 96 and start moving down towards Charleston and, um, and 96 is, is retaken by the American forces.
0: How did the South Carolina campaign end and how do Green and Sumter ultimately reconcile their differences?
1: So my book kind of takes you through the the summer of 1781. Um, They're kind of at the end of that summer, Green fights kind of the last remnants of the British occupation force at a place called Utah Springs Um, very similar scenario. He, he's, he actually does not win the battle, but the British um, are kind of take so many losses there that they decide to, to retreat further back and, and retreat all the way into Charleston at that point. So, so green, kind of going into the fall of 1781 green has has won the war of posts he's even though he's he's lost the three major battles that he's fought at hobkirk's hill 96 and utah springs the the british have withdrawn outside out of the interior of south carolina and now they're essentially holed up in charleston um but this the story goes on from there, and Green actually is um, he he never has enough uh, manpower enough forces to extricate the British from Charleston. The defenses are too strong, so it's another two years um, before the British actually evacuate Charleston and, and leave south carolina but But my story kind of moves on at that point. Um, Essentially, the the, the army um, and the militia become, um, uh, you know, kind of are set up around the perimeter of Charleston. Um, there's really not any further combat that goes on, um, and Sumter earlier in the war had made a decision. To um, confiscate loyalist slaves as part of a scheme to pay some of his soldiers, he was trying to entice them into a into a ten month enlistment um, with by paying them with slaves and so Nobody was really comfortable with this idea. You know, South Carolina was very much a slave slavery economy and even kind of the the Americans, the the Whigs or patriots didn't like this idea of kind of authorizing the confiscation of slaves as part of the war effort. And as the fighting is really winding down, um, this becomes a big Political issue for Sumter, and they're trying to um, organize uh, a a they've, they've called the General Assembly and session um, for the first time since the British invasion of Charleston, and, and Green is really kind of using this issue of the of the slaves to kind of um, diminish. Sumter's um status and he's he's essentially trying to 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 manipulate Sumter into into leaving um the militia to go defend himself at the General Assembly. Um so that's that is the the end of what happens in South Carolina. Sumter goes to the General Assembly. He manages to kind of negotiate a settlement to this issue over the slaves. Um, Green is still there. He's he's camped outside of Charleston. And that's really where the book ends. I do kind of go have a coda to to the end of the book. After the war, um, Green decides... To stay in the South, he had accrued quite a bit of debt during the war, and he decided that he was going to uh, become a, a, a planter, a plantation owner. And he was never successful at it. He, he was never able to kind of um, reduce this debt that he had accumulated. He actually dies. Um, at quite an early age. I believe he was 42 years old. Um, they think he died of heat stroke. Um, he left his wife with this kind of crushing debt. And she applies to Congress to um, for relief. You know, she says, my, my husband incurred this debt as an effort uh, as part of his his leadership of the army he was trying to feed and clothe his army and and this was really a, a, a an american debt not his personal debt so she spends the next several years lobbying for congress to to relieve this debt that green had accumulated well by now sumter is in the congress and he as as this petition comes forward to um, asking Congress to appropriate the money to relieve Green's debt, he actually by this time some of Green's correspondence that was not complimentary of Sumter, some of the things that he had written, kind of complaining about Sumter's lack of cooperation, had made it into some of the published accounts of the war, and Green and Sumter had been very offended. By this, and he stands up in Congress. They said that Sumter rarely ever spoke in Congress, Um, but on this occasion, he he stood up and made a very uh, impassioned argument that Green's debt should not be um, reimbursed to his widow. Um, And he loses the argument. the 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 motion passes, um, and. Green's widow is reimbursed, but but even at that last moment, there was still kind of this this lingering feud between
0: the two men. What does this story reveal to us about the revolutionary era?
1: Well, I think, um, I mean, I think for me, uh, my son calls me a Nathaniel Green fanboy. For me. one of the things it reveals is really this evolution of Nathaniel Green as, as a leader. Um, I think that he had, um, he had to learn to control those, those emotional um, responses that he had kind of succumbed to earlier in the war. Um, he, he had to learn how to work. With Thomas Sumter, with Francis Marion, with the militia of South Carolina, um, he had to—he had to—he realized that he couldn't command them. He had to kind of—it was a more political process than that—and and he learns how to do that. He he learns how to operate in this kind of complex environment. Um, I do think that here we have this this issue um, that we're really still dealing with as a nation, this idea of kind of um, federalism or the idea of of a federal, a strong federal government versus the idea of, um, you know, a state's right to 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 operate independently of that federal government. Of course, that was the issue that um, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, you know, they were they were fighting that same issue after the war. Um, here I think um, we see Green really trying to argue that it's in all of our best interest for you to work with me, for you to support me in this effort, And Sumter and maybe some of the other South Carolina militia um, officers saying, no, you know, this is our state. This is our effort. And we have the right to kind of conduct this resistance the way that we see fit, um, the way that works for us and for our people. And you don't really have the right to 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 order us or command us or tell us what to do and you know we see this just the other day you know trump was saying we're going to send the federal troops to the to the states and the states were pushing back and saying no we don't want the federal troops here to kind of um we don't need that help um we can handle these kind of uh, issues on our own so for me uh, that's part of the story this this conflict that we still really haven't been able to resolve um, kind of in our in DNA.
0: Andrew Waters, thank you for joining us.
1: Sure thing. Uh, I am, as I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of Journal of American Revolution. It kind of gave me my start in the writing about the American Revolution. And, and um, I'm just, pleased and honored to to be asked uh, to be on your podcast today.
0: The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.